Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guests are co-authors Jeff Galloway, Carmen Mohan, M.D., Ruth M. Parker, M.D. Today we will discuss the Women's Guide to Health. Olympian Jeff Galloway has spent more than 50 years developing, practicing, evaluating, and teaching his run-walk-run method. He has coached over 1 million runners to their goals through his retreats, clinics at events, individual consultations, running schools, and books. Ruth Parker, MD, is a primary care doctor trained in internal medicine and pediatrics. She is a lifelong athlete who has completed 28 marathons using Run, Walk, Run. Ruth is nationally known for her work in health literacy. Carmen Patrick Mohan, MD, is an internal medicine physician, health media consultant, and marathon runner who prescribes food and exercise as medicine. A competitive runner in college, Carmen suffered injury after injury until beginning Run, Walk, Run. Jeff, Carmen, and Ruth, welcome. Great to be here. Thank Thank you, Lena. What are we talking about when we say run, walk, run? What exactly is that? It's a method uh, that people can exercise. Uh, Walkers also can use a version of it in which you would walk your normal way and then every three to five minutes put in a shuffle break in which you reduce your stride and and you don't use the muscles and feet exactly the same way. In Run, Walk, Run, you're running a short amount, and then you're walking to reset your fatigue. You're also uh, taking away stress buildup that could occur on certain areas of the body that I call weak links. But by having the right amount of running and walking, I found that almost anyone can get into running. But if you cannot, then get into walking. What's the difference between walking, jogging, and running? Running is defined by having one foot uh, on the ground. uh, Excuse me. uh, Walking is defined as one foot on the ground all the time, and running is defined as having um, periods where both feet are in the air so that you're lifting the body off the ground. So running is significantly more work if you run non-stop. The beauty of Run, Walk, Run is that you can break up that non-stop pounding and the exertion level that occurs when you do that by having strategic walk breaks. I would just add, this is Ruth, Elaine. I would add that when I think about it, that's, that's Jeff the Olympian telling you what the real deal is. When I think about it, I'll tell you as a physician, I think of Jeff's method that he's used now with over a million people, it's also a way to be able to stay out longer because walking requires less of the body physiologically than running, but it incorporates breaks, if you will, or incorporates um, short segments or sometimes longer segments of running where the amount of energy and the aerobic intensity goes up. So it really offers the human body exposure to both an opportunity to be able to stay out longer and also have these bursts where what your body's required to do metabolically can burst to a higher level and then come back down and recover. So it's in my mind, it's pretty much a perfect prescription for being able to be out, stay out longer, and as part of that, have these episodes where you sort of can challenge your body a bit more depending on what your goals are or what your physical ability is. And Elena, this is Carmen. In my experience using Jeff's method and also using his method to coach my walking group to begin running, I have found that the difference between Walking, jogging, and running 
is really just our mind's ability to say, do I enjoy this exercise? So many people who are around me say, oh, I could never run or I hate running. And when we use walking primarily and then once they start to enjoy walking regularly, move into more of the 15-second run segment, followed by shuffling, followed by walking, you can really start to see that when people start to enjoy moving their bodies, they enjoy running. Now, jogging, runners will tell you, is just a way of denigrating their their identity as runners. I don't really think there's much of a definition for jogging, per se. I see people out there who are lifting their bodies off the ground a great deal and moving at a very fast clip, and others who are just barely qualifying as running or jogging, and they are breathing hard. Sometimes they're shuffling their feet when they hit the ground, and they're struggling. And so is there, I think in a lot of people's minds, the difference is that the ones who are moving slowly and with greater difficulty are the joggers and the ones who are moving very quickly and lifting their feet off the ground a lot higher are the walkers. Is there any truth to that or is that just sort of an urban myth? It's an urban myth because uh, the bottom line with running and walking is that each one of us is the captain of our own ship and we decide how we're going to walk or how we're going to run and what we want to call it. So uh, for the purposes of what we're talking about today, uh, we're talking about running as being a little bit more exertive so that you might huff and puff a little bit uh, and walking as being the gentle recovery mode. Uh, but um, the bottom line is we were designed as human beings to do both of these. Our ancient ancestors, uh, according to the uh, anthropologists, have uh, bestowed us with the capabilities of doing these two activities and going long distances because that's what enabled our ancestors to survive. And when we go back in to these longer um, workouts beyond 30 minutes, then all types of positive things happen in our brain as identified in a wonderful book called Spark. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I hear a lot of people say that humans aren't designed to run, that it's not natural, that it's very harsh on your joints and on your body in general. But I'm hearing you say just the opposite. Yes, actually, uh, the research is quite clear on that. That neither myself nor my orthopedic consultants could find any study showing that running, per se, harms orthopedic units. But there are quite a few studies out there now showing that runners have much healthier joints as the decades go by. Uh, the most respected is one out of Stanford, uh, and that study had several thousand runners over 50 that had been running for 20 years or more, and that population had less than 25% of the orthopedic complaints compared with non-runners their own age. Now, I will caveat that by saying that most of the anthropologists believe that we were not designed to run nonstop for long distances. And that, in other words, running was a mode to get away from a predator or uh, used in hunting, uh, quite well documented. But uh, if we run too far without taking a walk break, then there can be stress built up on the weak links. And so that's where run, walk, run comes in. Elena, this is Ruth. I think the other thing for the book that we're doing here, what, what Carmen and I have certainly observed from years of practicing medicine on the front lines as primary care docs, unfortunately, most people aren't doing either. And what we really wanted to do in this book was partner with someone, Jeff, who has put this method out there and been able to get so many people who did not think they could do either, engage, walk, run, go. And what we know from a health perspective is that 
getting out and reaching at least 150 minutes a week of, of walking, hopefully walk running some, is so vitally important to so many critical components of our health, from cardiovascular to mental health to um, to our joints. I mean, we are made, as Jeff just said, to go and move. And the data for not just the United States but all over are just so sad when you look at how many people just are not engaged in walking or walking and running. So we really take this book and start at the beginning and say, the first thing you got to do is get up and get going. And there are ways to do it that can be less intimidating. And, you know, we use a very empowering sort of encouraging tone to try to help people realize that, you know, the vast majority of people can reach the stated goal of a minimum, just a baseline of 150 minutes a week. And that's what we're trying to do in this book. And it's important. This is Carmen. This is very important because only 16% of Hispanic adults meet the CDC's physical activity guidelines. And it's important as well because we know diabetes and obesity are very prevalent in this group. So the important things are not to sit there and worry about your joints. It's to realize that health benefits start as soon as you do and that there's a threshold that you can cross enjoyably that will help prevent and treat chronic diseases. Let's go back to the whole title of the book in light of both of your comments, Carmen and Ruth, and address the entire concept of today's discussion, which is the Women's Guide to Health, Run, Walk, Run, Eat Right, and Feel Better. So I think these are, it's a holistic approach if I'm following. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think when we, when you know, there are a few things that can sort of walk us into this. Um, and I would, I would say part of it is, you know, there's a long-standing feeling that I've certainly had, and Carmen knows this, and, you know, Jeff's wife, Barbara, certainly is a part of this as well. But, you know, women are predominant health decision makers, not just for their families and themselves, but they have a huge influence on the communities around them, neighbors, neighborhoods, um, parks, schools. Um, they make most of the big health decisions for wherever they live. And so tapping into encouraging women to take charge of their own physical activity and what's going on with what's being eaten, sleeping, we really took the lens that we could actually prescribe a regimen that included starting at a very beginning level of walking and then working up over a 30-week period, this was from Jeff's already published Run, Walk, Run methods, but we started at a very fundamental level, and we have three different levels of get started, keep going, and burn fat. Each of those is a 30-week program that by the time you complete it, you've worked up to the 150 minutes a week, and by the time you're doing burn fat, you're even beyond that. So, this um, book that we've put out is a it's a series of steps that certainly incorporates something that's already well established by all the work Jeff's done. Thirty weeks is important because by that time you've got a habit that's beginning to form. You're beginning to see the impact of it. It needs to be combined with how you provide fuel and nutrition to your body. And that's why we prescribe basically a Mediterranean diet because of its known benefits. And it's a way to sort of codify or pull together a healthy approach to eating. And most all of us can improve on our, on what we eat and make it healthier. And then the other fundamental prescription that we put out there relates to sleeping, which is another critical important part of, um, uh, prescribing for health. So so we take those three, the run, walk, run, a level of prescription for 30 weeks, an approach to the Mediterranean diet and guide you through how to come up with a quality food score and what that looks like for you and your family, and then look at sleep for you and your family. 
And with those, we're prescribing the three of those for a better health outcome that relates not just to women, but to their families as well. That's kind of an overview of what we've done. What's the starting point? Who is the target audience for the book? I know you said that women often take the lead in their families. Should children be roped into this concept? Should moms encourage their husbands and their children, maybe their parents? Is there an age or a – are there people who maybe should not participate what would you say about that? Actually, I think we make the, the argument that this is for everyone. And for people that we might worry about, like those who have had a heart attack, for example, we recommend that they take our training programs into their primary care physicians. So we, we talk about meaningful conversations with your doctor that can be had when you bring in your health journal, and your training program to discuss how exercise can be modified for you. Everyone can do it. What about the argument that if you are overweight or obese, and we know now the numbers I saw the other day were staggering, I think almost three-quarters of the population falls into one of those categories, one of the arguments I hear people say is I'm too fat and running is bad because it's very hard on my joints. What would you say to them? Well, I can take the lead on that, but I do want to hear from Ruth and Carmen. Um, I work with a large number of people who are severely overweight or obese. I'm the training director for the Run Disney series, just got back from the Princess Half Marathon weekend down there. And during that weekend, I met over three dozen people who had lost over 100 pounds. And the one catalyst in all of those was that they used the run-walk-run methods. A lot of them started with only five seconds of running and 55 seconds of walking. And... If you have a short enough stretch of running and your feet are low to the ground, uh, there's really very little uh, chance, in my experience, that it's going to aggravate joints or whatever. And this is Carmen. I just want to say that just last week I got an email from one of our readers who says she has lost 17 pounds thanks to our book and following principles that we've outlined there. So even though the book is not completely about weight loss, in fact, we took pains to separate being active from weight loss. Those are two different things. Everyone needs to be active, no matter what our body types are. And if weight loss and finding a healthy weight is a goal, we have explicit directions for that. And, and we're trying to remain injury free. Um, and I would just say, like, like I said before, the health benefits start as soon as you do. And maybe running, just going out and running and being intense about it is not for everyone. And, and in fact, the converse is true. Gentle exercise is what we all need. Gentle exercise that we enjoy. Well, and also enough of it. I'm going to add that to it. I, I think just to underscore a couple of the principles that Jeff and Carmen have certainly been a part of uh, teaching and and demonstrating to people. As a physician, I always, you know, we it, it would be impossible, I would say, for me to go to work as a primary care physician and not have people that a lot of people that I encounter on a regular basis who are overweight, losing weight is one of their health goals. It has to be, and it's linked to a lot often of chronic health conditions and problems that they may be facing. But it's really important to realize that to lose weight requires changing what you eat in addition to the physical activity. And that's why both are part of, if you will, what we're calling prescriptions. Again, this is step, it's a tool, you take it in, you discuss it with your doctor. But if you try to go out and lose a lot of weight by just engaging in physical activity and not looking at what it is that you're consuming to fuel your body, you face a big uphill battle. And that's why it, 
if the health goal is really to modify both physical activity and to to reach the health goal of a healthy diet, you got to look at all of this together because they do act together. They're synergistic. The other thing I just wanted to point out is, and Jeff, I'm sure you've seen this, and Carmen, we've talked about it, I know. You know, often people who begin to engage in physical activity who have not been very active, they may already have a pretty healthy approach to eating, and maybe maybe they don't need to make a lot of modifications there. One of the things that, that often we see is, though how much you weigh may not change that much on a scale, your body shape can change significantly as you engage your muscles and your joints, and they all become happy. They, they become healthier. They become healthier because it relates to the same thing Jeff spoke about earlier. Our bodies are actually made to move. And Jeff and Ruth, let's talk about what what we 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 talk about these things when we're in person and when we're running and walking together. But you know, the problem solving brain kicks on when we move. It doesn't matter what body type we're in, the problem-solving brain kicks on when we move. So for those executives out there who need a creative solution, if you're not using your body, you, you're not bringing your full self to work, I would argue. Mind, body, and spirit are all engaged when we exercise, and there are a number of really good books that uh, highlight this. One of them is the Spark book that I mentioned Another one is my mental training book. And what the research shows is that when we move ourselves forward, we turn on brain circuits that uh, activate the hippocampus. That is the center in our brain for learning, for memory, and for new growth of brain cells. And, oh, boy, do we need new growth of brain cells. But exercise does that better than anything else that has ever been discovered. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because a lot of people also say I'm too old to try something new. Why do I have to do something that I don't like? I'm already, I'm, I am what I am. And it is important from what you're saying because if you don't move, you don't grow new brain cells. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. The research shows that new brain cells are grown at any age if you move yourself forward regularly. And the other major area in the whole mental side is the circuits that are turned on in your brain when you exercise for a better attitude, for more vitality, and for personal empowerment. And this is also true at any age. You, from the beginning of the book, recommend that readers maintain a journal. Tell us about that and why you think that it's so important. Well, I'll say just a brief thing, but I want to hear from Ruth and Carmen on this. A journal engages your human brain, the cognitive brain, and it gives you control over whatever it is you're doing. So as you take out your pen or you use your computer and you enter something, uh, then the human brain starts working and um, it overrides the subconscious brain that can lead us into being lazy or whatever uh, other behaviors that we're trying to avoid. But when the human brain is engaged, you have control, at least for the next few minutes, over what you're going to do and it allows you to set up a goal, to follow that goal, and to make changes in your life. I have personally used a health journal um, because of the way, the way I read Jeff's instructions when I first started Run, Walk, Run. And so our health journal simply builds on his, his prior um, running journal and includes health-related information so that patients can bring that information to their doctors because the way that we sleep, whether or not we're on a, in a menstrual cycle, what day we are in a menstrual cycle, what we ate, 
and how we moved our bodies all relates to how our blood pressure and blood glucose and how we feel. And so the health journal is the number one thing I think everyone needs to start keep needs to start keeping. It helps us understand how our bodies work and things that influence us. It is the way that physicians recognize patterns that relate to, for example, headaches or um, just a feeling of fatigue. And sleep is the primary thing that we can do. So when we get busy, we often sacrifice sleep. But sleep is the number one way that we repair ourselves and develop emotional processing. It's paramount if we're trying to change um, the way we treat our bodies. I would say the other thing, you know, particularly for, for executives and for people who, if you will, are busy. You know, who isn't busy these days? But, you know, we have, we have, we have a lot of people who, you know, the plate's very full. There's so much going on. Um, and particularly people who are engaged in business, um, the business case for health, the expenses that, you know, health expenses in this country are close to 20 percent of our GDP. Everybody's trying to figure out how do we get better value? How do we cut costs? It was really exciting for Carmen and me as physicians to be able to partner with Jeff, who already has, I don't know, what have you got, Jeff, 18, 20 other books out there. But he'd never worked with physicians as co-authors. And yet so much of what he was doing in the real world with Run, Walk, Run now being used by over a million people. He's got training programs in dozens of um, countries and in hundreds of cities across the United States with this real-world evidence that people can do it and that they can engage safely and that they can be healthier. What we really wanted to do was make the medical and healthcare relevance of that known to, 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 to people who see themselves also as patients. And I would say for the business executives, so much money, time, and energy is spent around health. Health is fundamental to the lives of everyone. And by making ourselves healthier, we, we encourage so many other outcomes. And business executives would be the first to say that expensive medical conditions are incredibly costly on so many levels. So one of the exciting things to me was to be able to take, we started with journaling. Well, Jeff has used journaling. Carmen has certainly used it a lot in our own life. As a primary care physician, I can tell you, the more we're able to get to terms that you're hearing in business, like getting people engaged, activated, motivated, wanting to be a part of self-management of chronic health conditions, one of the ways we do that is through a tool like writing it down, sharing it with your doctor, tracking it yourself, all of those are executive functions, if you will, that help people become more engaged. And there's no question but that those of us who are able to sort of prioritize it and make it a part of a priority for ourselves and our families really do have a great opportunity to not just influence ourselves, but people beyond ourselves are greatly influenced by seeing us do it. And Ruth, I would just add, we we want you to write it down in longhand. We do not want you to use an app for that. And the reason is the way that the brain works is when it writes things down in longhand, for whatever reason, we're much more primed to be able to change a habit. That's what the data says. We might want to think it's different, but that's what the data says. Once you have the journal, is it just the act of keeping the journal that has the healthful benefits. I know you mentioned, for example, sharing it with your doctor, but for a lot of people, finding the time to write it is a challenge. But going to the doctor's office and actually going over journal findings seems unlikely. Certainly for many doctors, you're lucky if they spend 15 minutes with you in your annual physical. So walking through the contents of an entire year's worth of a journal doesn't seem to me like you have a good chance of squeezing into that time. Is this something that you need to push for? 
On the contrary, I'm not advocating for necessarily a year's worth of journal review, but the patient who brings in a log along with what she wants to talk about and a training program, that's a dream patient. And I'm telling you that as a primary care doctor. So I might not need a year's worth of that journal, but the last two weeks, last three weeks, would not be uh, unheard of. I mean, in fact, it probably already answers the questions that I have for the patient. I think the other thing is that we are in this book encouraging people who across the lifespan may well be on medications. I mean, chronic common health conditions like high blood pressure, like prediabetes, like diabetes, which is incredibly common, like high cholesterol or depression or anxiety or trouble with sleep or Pain in the joints, especially osteoarthritis in the knees and the hips, these things that plague many of us across the life cycle, being able to record how the training program over 30 weeks and aligning what you do for yourself and your family with um, healthy eating and tracking the impact of this It is really important, especially for people who've got chronic health concerns, to be able to look at how those health concerns are impacted by training programs. The the good thing is it's a great report card, and it's a way to reinforce um, the really positive motivation that it takes to stay engaged. And people find, and, you know, Jeff, this comes from your 30-week training program, that you got to do it more than a few weeks. And sort of setting that goal of I'm going to do this for 30 weeks and I'm going to see what happens over time. And knowing that you can really partner with your physician who may well be prescribing you medications for multiple chronic conditions is actually not only doable, but helpful and improves some of the things that, if you will, the busy executives have on their um, balance sheets. Outside versus inside. Uh, exercise, you mean? Yes. Well, outside exercise gives you a lot of other benefits, but the bottom line is really what you can do. I mean, if, if you can't get outside, then it is very valuable to do your exercise indoors. Uh, it's just a nice treat, though, to be outside with the trees and the smells and the weather and so forth. Um, But go inside if that's the only thing you can do. What importance does what you eat have? And I've heard you mention sleep several times and how powerful that is in your overall health. Uh, You also talk a lot about what you eat, whether you should drink diet sodas, and why there's a relationship with weight gain, what does your food intake have to do with your ability to run and walk and stay healthy? So what I would say is this, that we should do it backwards. First, first you start moving your body. Uh, well, first you start sleeping well, and then start moving your body, and then see how you tell yourself what I put in my body will be healthy for my body. And the reason I'm telling you to do it that way is if you don't sleep enough, it's really easy to make bad health decisions with what you put into your body. And we need to realize that food and fuel have an emotional component, right? We're talking spiritual food, emotional food. When we treat our bodies well, we like to put good things into it. And we feel better when we put more fruits and vegetables, healthy grains and good fats, lean proteins than we do with packaged foods. So that is generally the diet advice that we provide. You mentioned no red meats in your book. There are a lot of people who are carnivores to the extreme and they just cannot consider life quality life without red meats can you point to studies that link not processed meats not bad meats but actually animals that are healthy that are living free range that are hormone and antibiotic free but that are still 
indicating that those kinds of meats are bad for you? Unfortunately not. I have never seen a study that was able to show that its animals were free of things I don't think people should put into their bodies. And our general advice on red meat consumption stems from the World Health Organization labeling red meat as carcinogenic. Exactly. So the jury is still out in some respects, but by and large it seems that most forms or certainly most of forms of commercially available red meats are something to be shy of for purposes of our discussion. Is that right? Yeah, and Elena, I would say that, you know, for someone who just craves it and loves it, then don't eat a lot of it. You know, if it's once a week or once every two weeks, I I don't think that a a healthy approach to living should feel like punishment. And I think that, you know, with anything, be reasonable with yourself, be good to yourself. And if it's something that elevates your spirit because it's just a flavor or a taste that you just crave, then make it a special treat. But just don't, you know, don't find yourself someone who's eating it every day, multiple times a day. And that's where many people are right now. And there are healthier alternatives to getting good nutrition. Ruth, wouldn't you say that the best thing someone could do, no matter what else they're doing with their diet, would be to add fresh fruits and vegetables to their diet? As a matter of fact, one of the things that's so interesting to me, when you go through the prescription for healthy eating that's in this book, I think probably the most common uh, fault is to not eat enough fruits and vegetables. If you don't eat enough, you don't get credit for it. And um, eating, you know, five helpings of fruits and vegetables a day has been linked in numerous studies to improved health outcomes. And the vast majority of people do not eat five helpings of fruits and vegetables a day. That's why often you have to get kind of creative. You're going to have to have a smoothie. You're going to have to find ways to get all five helpings incorporated into your diet. The other nice thing about it is when you do it, it helps to fill you up. And you're filling yourself up with something that's highly digestible, full of fresh nutrients. And it really is not more expensive. It has to become a way of figuring out how to make it happen. And it moves you away from what you can't have, right? We don't want to think, like, I like that you said, don't think of it as punishment. Think of it as things that you can have. These are all the things that you can eat, really yummy, good stuff. But reading between the lines, what I'm hearing you say is that ketchup does not count as a vegetable and raspberry jam doesn't count as a fruit. (laughs) Uh, That's right. (laughs) Ketchup counts. Too much salt and the raspberry jam counts as too much sugar. For those who are on the extreme side of healthy and are already eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and leafy greens, what would you say about oxalates? No, no, no. I have yet to see any study that says that green leafy vegetables are bad for us in any way. The only person who I would caution about green leafy vegetables are on particular medications that interact with vitamin K. But that is a very, that's a very specific person and that person is only harmed when they change their diet very rapidly and in unexpected ways so that titrating medications is difficult. But in general, eat your greens. Eat your greens. So you're saying it's okay for people to eat kale every day of the year? Uh, Any leafy green is, yeah, eat it. Eat it. Any Eat produce whenever you're offered it. If someone offers you an apple, an orange, you know, kale, kale salad, eat it. Eat it at every opportunity. It's good for you. What about dairy? There's a lot of controversy about dairy and whether it's good for people. I've actually had my doctor say that dairy is for baby cows and should not be eaten by humans. So, again, it depends on who you are. So there are some people who are lactose intolerant. And in that case, a health journal will help them discover what 
particular food items don't agree with them. But in in some of the world, for example, and also in our elderly population, dairy consumption is one of the best ways that they can help protect their bones and, and muscles. So, you know, I, overdoing any one thing is never a good idea. And being balanced on just about everything is a good idea. In general, dairy contains very high calories. And so for someone losing weight, it should be minimized. In most healthy diets, dairy <coughs> consumed healthily <coughs> in limited fashion. And can you point to any studies that actually link eating dairy to bone health? The calcium consumption is directly linked. I mean, calcium is, is, you know, it's essential for healthy bones. Right. And no, but so I'm asking, are there any studies that you're aware of that you can cite a journal or a um, medical journal or any other respectable research that can directly link eating dairy to bone health? Yes, but I don't have that necessarily available at this exact juncture. I mean, again, the, the advice around dairy is limited and, and don't eat it if, if it perturbs you. And you can get calcium from other things. But it's not something, just like red meat, it's not something we say, don't eat it. You know, it can be eaten healthily. The other issue with uh, dairy is saturated fat in the whole milk products. So with the uh, skim products, you can eliminate that risk. So, Jeff, you're recommending skim dairy products? Yes, that gives you all the calcium and uh, most of the nutrients without the fat, the saturated fat. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, dairy, I, I don't see any need to say I can't have dairy products. Just watch the fat content. And if you're lactose intolerant, you're going to know it. And you're not going to want to be eating them. And, you know, you're going to be looking for other uh, other sources, uh, particularly calcium. There are other sources, but, but dairy is such an important source of calcium, which is so important. It's really important for children. It's really important you know, as they're growing and developing their bones, and it's critically important for women as they go through menopause and, and beyond. Calcium is. Yes. For bone health, calcium is fundamental. Calcium and vitamin D are fundamental to the health of our bones. What can you tell us about, since we're bringing up the topic of healthy bones, what can you tell us about bone health and exercise? Because some people feel that as their bones are weaker, say, for example, if they have osteopenia or osteoporosis, they have concerns that exercising and certainly running is going to be bad for their bones. Well, the research is actually to the contrary, and uh, I want uh our two doctors to enter in here, but uh, there are quite a few studies showing that walking and particularly running, if the running is not too nonstop, actually allows the bones to assimilate the calcium and to uh, be stronger. That's correct. When we use, when we have compressive forces on our bones, they receive signals that help them incorporate the vitamins that they need to remain strong. And without those forces, they're not able to do that. What about stimulants? A lot of people like to have a cup of coffee or five in the course of their day, certainly before they go out to exercise. Is that a good idea? Well, I sure do. I'd like to have my three cups of coffee a day. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> And I think that's very common. I mean, I think, you know, caffeine and, you know, be it in tea and coffee, you know, we see, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think, you know, we're not talking about 10 cups a day, but, you know, a couple, two or three cups a day. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean, have any concern. You know, at three cups a day, that's when the, the side effects like feeling jittery start to kick in there and, 
So for some people with certain heart conditions, they should talk to their doctors first if they have a, an extreme coffee habit. But, you know, one, two cups of coffee a day, even three, can help us stay motivated. And especially right before I go to run, I like to have a cup of coffee. And the research is really good on exercise uh, and the benefits that a cup of coffee before exercise bestows. What do you think about sugar? Because if I recall correctly from the book, you were not big fans of sugar, and that, for a lot of people, is an alternative to caffeine. When they're going to exercise, they have a protein bar or they have a chocolate, something that gives them quick energy. I mean, I like the chocolate idea. Uh, and, in fact, our diet allows for, for chocolate as a treat. Uh, but sugar is not good for us, especially the stuff that comes out of packaged foods. It's just not good for us. And it's not equivalent to that cup of coffee uh, that does have other kinds of good things in it besides the caffeine. So you're right. I, we don't agree with necessarily eating a protein bar instead of a banana along with a piece of chocolate before going out. If your blood sugar level is low before a workout, then a small amount of, of sugar within 30 minutes before the workout has been shown to boost the blood sugar and not cause an insulin roller coaster in most people. The amount is suggested to be 100 calories or less, and again, within 30 minutes before the start, and only if your blood sugar level is, is below what it should be. How would you know that, Jeff? You would feel um, not very energetic. Um, and there are symptoms that are individual with low blood sugar. Some people actually get very jittery. Uh, others um, lose their motivation to exercise when normally and an hour before they were motivated to exercise. Uh, so if your energy is low, you don't feel like going out, uh, it very well could be low blood sugar. And I'll just say, you know, we use the word sugar because everybody, you know, thinks, okay, I know what that means. So there are different ways to take in sugar. Sugar is a carbohydrate. And a, a piece of fresh fruit is carbohydrates. And you can boost your blood sugar by eating a piece of fruit. And that is an unrefined, unprocessed way to take in what it is you need to boost your own internal blood glucose level. And so there again, it's what you choose among the options of what you're fueling your body with. And I think in general, the idea, you know, we're, we're so attuned to the fast food world and the quick, easy solution. We're hungry. We got to have it right now. And unfortunately, we've been sort of duped by um, so many choices out there that are loaded. They're quick, they're easy, and they're loaded with sugar and fat and salt, which is very different than sort of getting back to the fundamental building blocks like fruits and vegetables that you can see and recognize for what they are that really are a better treat for our bodies. And so to me, you know, the more we come to view ourselves as deserving high-quality nutrition, and, and, and we need to treat our bodies in a way not only that we move it, because bodies are made to move. And when we move our bodies, we're signaling our bodies, hey, I'm alive, I want to keep going, I want you to keep, you know, hang on with me, grow with me, carry me where I need to go. And that same body deserves high-quality fuel. And the highest-quality fuel are foods that are close to the way they were created. Those are things that grow and look like what came off of trees or out of the ground. They are things that you recognize by what they are and not because of how they've been manufactured and processed. And exercise tends to uh, adjust your appetite for better foods. There are a number of studies that have shown that once somebody gets into regular exercise approximately every other day for half an hour or more, that their diet changes for the better. 
And the reason is because you metabolize that pure fuel, those foods that are of a high quality, you metabolize them better, and they give you the energy quickly to be able to continue what is a really healthy cycle of staying physically active. Remember, the goal here is to try to get everybody up to this 150 minutes a week. Okay, so you can do the math. That's that's two and a half hours. That's 30 minutes five times a day. That's just a baseline. You know, being fit and healthy, go beyond that. That's enough just to get your body metabolically tuned in and cranking. So, you know, we really want to see everybody begin to chart those minutes and get up to at least that and then to begin to see how that impacts, you know, different components of health. The sad report card for the United States is that most people, most, are not at that 150 minutes a week. And that's something that could really be changed. Here's another fact. Uh, a study came out last year showing that virtually all types of exercise statistically extend your lifespan because of the health benefits. Walking, for example, between two and three times the amount you spend. So for every hour you walk, you extend your lifespan statistically by two to three hours. With running, it's seven hours. Is there a a, a particular study that you're looking at, Jeff, that you could share with us for our listeners who want to know more about that? Yes, it was printed in the New England Journal of Medicine early last year. Do you know the name of the study? I don't have it in front of me, but I'm sure that if you go to New England Journal of Medicine, you can find it. Excellent. You were saying earlier that it's okay if you're feeling sluggish, if you are low energy, to eat something that will give you some of that energy to sort of get you out the door. Is exercising every day at the same time a good thing? Uh, you know, if it if that uh, allows you to be more consistent, then it is a very good thing. But it's not absolutely necessary. For brain benefits, it's best to get out early in the morning. But if it's hard for you to get out there, you may not get out there as many times a week if you set that as your only time to run uh, or walk or do other forms of exercise. So if you have a choice, go out early in the morning, be outdoors if you can, and if you can't, then exercise whenever you can and wherever you can. Is that right? That is the mission of our book, and you will find all types of ways uh, in the book to uh, back that up. Smoking. Not a good idea. So you can't be a smoker and exercise. Is that about the the size of it? Oh, that is that is not the same thing. No. I mean, you absolutely. I think if you are a smoker, engaging in physical activity is even more important. As is a good diet. The reason being that, you know, data are very clear and smokers know this. This is not news to smokers that first of all, it's hard to quit. It's really hard to quit. And I I have actually never met someone who smokes who doesn't already know that it's bad for their health. You know, that is not a newsflash. Quitting is hard. I think one of the things that can help people with cutting down and quitting is to feel better about yourself. And I think that's what happens when you engage in physical activity and when you eat better and sleep more. So I think one of the ways to really help yourself with cutting down and quitting is absolutely to engage with this book. And depending on whether or not you may or may not have any lung damage from however long and how much you've smoked over time, you'll need to work through the book to figure out at what level. And we do recommend no huffing and puffing. We don't want to see people with underlying lung disease go out and begin to wheeze. And that's why, you know, if you smoke, and you're interested in quitting and you've had trouble with it, I would say this book's for you. Are any of you receiving any kind of compensation from 
third parties of any kind in your work or in relation to the book? Not in relation to the book. No, not in relation to the book. No, not in relation to the book. So in your work privately, anything that might influence the message in your book from pharmaceutical companies or dairy companies or pork companies or anybody? No, no. absolutely not. And I, I think, Elena, it would be important to say our book had a very strong medical and public health advisory uh, several people who have very big national reputations, including in public health, in population health. Those are very big, important lenses for everybody in our country right now. Also in diabetes and meta metabolic disease, in heart health, cardiovascular health, and in who else was on our advisory Um Oh, in, in, in orthopedics. So we, we very much use evidence to guide what we're setting forth in the book. And we do look at common chronic health conditions that women have and the evidence about engaging in run, walk, run and healthy eating and what those can do for you if you have one of these very common chronic health conditions with your heart, with diabetes, metabolic sleeping, mental health conditions. So all the content is driven by evidence and science, and there are no vested interests. Our vested interest is in seeing the health of the public improve. That's what we did the book for, and that's what, we're, that's what motivates us as authors. Absolutely. What role, and I know this could probably take up an entire, entire hour, but if there's a succinct answer to it, do hormones and the hormonal cycles for both men and women play in your exercise and health and eating regimes? This is Carmen. I would say that's, some, that's the reason that we recommend a health journal. You can see the ebb and flow and how you're feeling and be able to relate that back to any kind of pattern in your life. And for women in particular, um, being able to record the menstrual cycle in terms of days is helpful. And it's helpful to note in terms of sleep and motivation. And when you know yourself, then you're able to answer that question for yourself. And for many, it's helpful across time. Um, none of us should expect our bodies to be the same when we're 20 as they are when we're 40, 50, 60, 70, 90, 100 whatever it is. So having that to look to look at across the life cycle, I think it's another great thing for women to be engaged in because it helps them with guiding others in their family and in their neighborhoods with what to expect over time. You know, it's the, it's the life cycle. What is the guideline? There are increasingly, I'm noticing, perhaps they've been there for a decade or longer, but increasingly I'm noticing as I've been paying more attention to these super athletes, these people who are competing in a number of categories in marathons and triathlons and iron marathons, and I'm at a loss for all of the terms. Is this still healthy? Is doing 100 miles multiple times a year in these extreme marathons, is this good? Are, are you going overboard? There are so few of those people in the world that I wouldn't trust the information, even if it were in front of me. We all need to understand that in terms of health, when we're talking about health, not optimal performance, which is where those guys are. When we're talking about health, the wrong answer is 0, 0.0 or the other bumper sticker that you see that's 70.1. The amount of time it takes to get to 70.1 miles in a triathlon is not the amount of time that we need to be healthy. I would say the right bumper sticker to have is 3.1. 3.1, what do you think, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's all about getting out there because regular exercise has been the number one way that in uh, the research has been shown to change your life in so many other ways. It stimulates so many positive changes. 
how much is too much is my question. If you're doing 100 miles a month, is that too much? Is 10 miles a week too much? Well, I have uh, been, I've worked with uh, hundreds of of runners every year that uh, choose to take on these arduous goals that you're talking about. And the amazing thing is that at least half of these people were on the couch about three years before they took this on. They totally changed their lives. Uh, and these are, a lot of them are people that said, well, there's no way that I'll ever run or whatever. And now they're doing multiple marathons and some of them doing uh, 50 or 100 mile races. Now, the, to, to build up to that is not what we're talking about because um, not that this is necessarily harmful, uh, but regular exercise is is what we're talking about. So the 150 uh, minutes a week, uh, no, 250, 230, what is it? <laughs> 150 minutes a week, two and a half okay. hours a week. I mean, literally two and a half hours, five 30-minute blocks is just the base. Yeah, but to get up to that, and we know that most people are not there. Male and Well, I uh, have tracked so many of these people that, that go on to do these amazing things. The number one downside is that they get burned out. They reach a point where they're pushing themselves too hard every day, and they just don't have the desire to continue. And sadly, a lot of them drop out of exercise. And remember, Elena, we started with Carmen pointing out that only 14%. 16. 16%. 16%. So that's 84% of Hispanic people in the United States do not get the basic minimum Right, that's right. Amount of physical activity, so, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. So I guess the the issue is that it's really the scientific community hasn't necessarily answered the question of how much is too much because so many of us aren't doing anything at all. Right. Get get some shoes, put them on, get started, work through that, keep going, work through that, and if your goal is to burn fat, you're going to have to go a little further and do a little more. And, you know, basically what we're doing is offering you a guide in a very positive, friendly, encouraging, evidence-based way to say the vast majority of people can do this. And what we're hoping is to be a helping guide for that, an encouraging and helping guide for those who have a chronic medical condition and may be on prescription medications. Many people are. You also are a are an ideal target for this kind of engagement. So that's really where we are, and um, that's our big message. We wrote this book because so many people have come to each one of us saying, well, you know, I, I, I realize I should be exercising or eating better, whatever, but I, I've got to have a guide. I can't find a guide. Well, here is the guide. Step by step. And, you know, you can do it. Yes. In addition to the book and these encouraging ways that readers can get started, keeping a journal, emphasizing sleeping and eating and just getting started, for those listeners who want to know more about the subject and find studies that say there are links to health and mental exercise and mental health and growing cells that we were talking about earlier and all of these issues that we've discussed diabetes and Alzheimer's and cancer and cardiac disease and so forth where can they go are there any resources that you can suggest, any websites or any other additional titles? Jeff, of course, some of your books. Are there any other resources that the three of you would recommend for readers who want to know more? Well, Go ahead, Jeff. Well, my website, jeffgalloway.com, has a lot of free resources. And if you have any questions, uh, you can actually email me from that, that uh, website. 
And I think the other thing is in the book, you'll see we do go over 10 of the most common chronic health conditions. And for each of those, there are references in the book with articles or websites that are good evidence based on science. So they're they're in the book and easy to find. What tips, what suggestions would you share with our listeners who want to get started, who are among that very large majority that you've mentioned, who isn't exercising at all or maybe isn't reaching that 150 minutes that you've recommended? And for perhaps another group, those that are in that small minority who are exercising and want to get better at it, what tips would you share for both of those groups? Get to work early and just um, walk around the parking lot or walk inside the building. Uh, Just start with five to ten minutes and set aside and focus on getting the five to ten minutes. What you're going to find is that you gradually increase from that. And that really is the point. You want to have a gradual increase and not try to get in 30 minutes all at once the very first day. I guess my tip would be find someone you want to connect with, who you want to have a meaningful relationship with, and get started with them. So whether that's a mentee, a colleague, or a personal friend, a neighbor, take that person with you. And I guess mine would be to put a smile on your face and enjoy it. Because this is one of the greatest joys in life, to be able to to take advantage of what your body can do. And it has a huge impact just beyond each of us. So to everyone, I'd say we'll see you out there and look forward to it um, with a smile on our face. Don't push yourself to huffing and puffing. And if you back off when you start to do that and just walk for enough time to feel good, you'll be ready to go again and your body will respond. I know when people tell me, because I love being outside and I'm out a lot and and I like to go, and when people say to me, um, I saw you out running the other day, I always come back with them and say, I hope I was walking. So, you know, feel good about it and be proud of it. Thank you, Jeff, Carmen, and Ruth, for joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. Great podcast, Elena. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to co-authors Jeff Galloway, Carmen Mohan, M.D., and Ruth M. Parker, M.D., who discussed the Women's Guide to Health, Run, Walk, Run, Eat Right, and Feel Better. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.